and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm a acute physician working in Coventry, and today we are very lucky to have a very special guest, guest with us. Hello, Amy. It's a pleasure for me to, to join you today. Um, my name is Cheng Hok To. I am a haematologist based at Liverpool, and I'm also the current academic vice president for the Royal College of Physicians in London. So, Amy, I was going to introduce a case okay. um, that you might well see as a sort of acute physician at the front door of the hospital. Uh, often enough, it troubles me, and I'm <laughs> sure um, we we might have some clarity about how these cases are better managed uh, going forward. So. We had a gentleman of 68 who presented to the A&E with confusion and he had been found by his sister on the floor at home. So as far as we could ascertain, um, he has a history of type 2 diabetes, a lot of the typical comorbidities like hypertension, and indeed he had a cerebellar stroke approximately three or four years ago with a history too of recurrent bilateral pulmonary emboli uh, involving the right ventricular, uh, involving right ventricular strain as well. So he's been known um, to the hematology department for a while and he's on long-term anticoagulation as you would expect. Um, In the most recent event prior to this uh, fall and found collapse at home is he had a hip replacement about eight weeks ago. So somewhat complicated, uh, some recent things, but probably not atypical of the kind of cases yeah. that come, come <laughs> to you and me. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more information that might be relevant, and that's the drug history. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's on perindopril. He is on idoxaban, which, as you know, is one of the new direct uh, oral anticoagulants. But because he was confused, it was very difficult for us to to be clear when he had taken the last dose of that anticoagulant. Mm -hmm. Um, So as far as we know, he lives alone. He's uh, usually pretty independent. Uh, Then there's no history of um, alcohol intake and he's not a smoker. And when it came to the examination findings, he had a GCS score of uh, 14 out of 15, so, you know, pretty confused. His SATs were about 93% on room air, respiratory rate of 19, temperature was up at 39, Uh, heart rate was uh, 137, BP was okay, and we could see quite a bit of bruising over that left hip uh, where he had that surgery not so long ago. But otherwise, we couldn't detect any significant bleeding or bruising. So so clearly this was a patient that, you know, was triaged and seen quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wanted some investigations to, to guide our management. Mm-hmm. So I wondered, um, Amy, whether I could sort of get your feedback as, as to what you would normally want to be uh, getting some results on to guide your management. Okay, very complicated case. Again, as you mentioned, very typical of sort of a general medical case. 
68-year-old gentleman presented to the emergency department with confusion. We're not sure how long the confusion's been going on for. He lives alone, he's normally independent. And key in his history is that he's had multiple PEs, he's on long-term anticoagulation, and he's had a recent hip replacement. So the sort of things that are going through my head is, what is the cause of the confusion? And I really need to do some investigations now to confirm and refute possible ideas in my head. So first of all, I'm going to think about infection. You mentioned that his temperature was 39 degrees. He's had a recent hip replacement. I'd like to look at the hip. Is this a potential source of infection? Septic arthritis. On top of that, recent hospital stay. Could he have a hospital-acquired pneumonia, potentially? Um, or is there just another source of infection with a confusion? Has he got a meningitis, encephalitis? Again, this is further on down the line, but all things that I need to be thinking about. And then obviously of key importance is the fact that he's confused. Found on the floor, has he had a fall and banged his head that's led to the confusion? Or did the confusion lead to the fall? He's on a doxaban. Has he had some sort of intracerebral event? So investigations wise, at the bedside, I'd like to start off by doing an ECG. And I'd like to do his glucose because that hypoglycemia can also be a cause of confusion. I would like to do, you uh, probably do a arterial blood gas. He's slightly hypoxic at 93% on air. So this may help look at his lactate level. Is he septic? And has he had another pulmonary embolism? Has he been taking his adoxaban? Moving on to blood tests for blood counts, looking at signs of infection, look at the white cell count, the neutrophil count. Look at the haemoglobin. Has he lost any blood? We know he's confused. He's on a doxaban. Has he been bleeding internally? I would also like to look at his kidney function and his liver function. Kidney function would be really important if he's on a doxaban. A recent hospital stay, has his kidney function deteriorated and is he still on a doxaban when maybe this wouldn't be appropriate? Again, the same with the liver function tests. I'd also like to look at his clotting. What's his prothrombin time? What's his activated partial thromboplastin time? Um, I would like to look at his CRP. So look at his infection markers. Um, any other blood tests? I'm a bit stuck on blood tests now. Mm, well, I think that's really comprehensive. And it's so interesting listening to you as an acute physician when yeah. I'm a haematologist because sometimes, as you can imagine, we will have different flavours on how we yes. would approach a case. But, but certainly all the things that you've suggested are, uh, are really important for the differential diagnosis in it. And maybe I'll just share with you some of the results and then we can sort of channel Absolutely. perhaps the next stage of investigations. Um, the CRP was 450. Wow. So I think that kind of <laughs> gives you a pointer, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and as to the kind of blood test that, you know, I'm particularly involved yeah. with as a hematologist. Um, the hemoglobin was, uh, was very useful. It was 110 having been about 120 in the last uh, month. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, a discernible drop. And MCV was slightly high at 90. 
so that that's, may arouse some uh, discussion around that too. Platelets were normal. White cell count, as you might expect, was uh, high at 14, most of which were neutrophils. Mm -hmm. So nothing too suspicious about uh, anything uh, unexpected there. So as to the clotting screen, you know, there's clearly a trend these days that perhaps we over, uh, well, we ask for too many clotting screens, but, but certainly in this case, we, we can discuss whether it's relevant in a patient who's on one of these uh, direct oral anticoagulants when the message we're giving out is they don't need monitoring. <laughs> exactly. Yes, absolutely. So, so, but I can share with you that the prothrombin time is slightly out. It's 15.9 seconds. So in most laboratories, I think that would be uh, uh, seen as abnormal. Mm -hmm. And the APTT was 30 seconds, which uh, in most cases would, would be in the normal range. Fibrinogen was fine, and uh, the EGFR, which uh, you alluded to earlier, is very important in this particular case, is 70. So for a 68-year-old man, not too bad. Yeah. So I think the rest were, were not very significant. The blood glucose was normal, and creatinine kinase was up at the 3000s. So nothing too surprising given what we can see in front of us. So uh, probably now we can sort of think about what sort of non-blood type of investigations are needed. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I would be grateful for your insight into how you think it should be managed. Okay, so... Let's start with some radiology investigations then. So we really need to find the source of the infection. So I guess from the examination that I've done, so you know whether he had any signs of infection on his chest, so any consolidation, any crepitations, um, I'd do a chest X-ray. Again, as I've mentioned, is it an increased risk of hospital-acquired pneumonia? Certainly. Um, I'd like to look at the hip. Now, an X-ray of the hip isn't great for diagnosing septic arthritis because you know you're not going to see changes of septic arthritis until 10 to 12 days after the infection's actually set in and I'd often need a specialist input from an orthopod if I thought that the hip was septic particularly because it was a replaced hip um, could this be coming from his urine I think we overdiagnose urinary tract infections in an acute setting and recent NICE guidance says that we don't do a urine dipstick on anybody over the age of 65 and it's from the symptomatology. Difficult to take a history from him so we could do an MSU um, to see whether he does have an infection. That is going to take 48 hours to come back though. Um, we need to scan his head so he's got a slightly decreased GCS at 14, he's confused, and we know he's on a doxaban. So I need to know whether there is anything on the brain that could be contributing to the confusion. And potentially, would I be thinking about meningitis? So am I going to be going down the lines of a lumbar puncture um, to look for signs of bacterial or viral meningitis and cephalitis? and looking at the protein, the glucose, the cell count, the microscopy culture and sensitivity, and maybe thinking about doing PCR for viral infections. Um, I think that's probably it for now in an acute setting. I've probably missed something. No, I don't think so at all. And I think uh, 
it covers all the angles. We, you know, what really struck me in, in the answer was um, that yes, we had some strong indicators that infection was mm -hmm. uh, an issue here, but nonetheless, sometimes we have a tendency to just focus on one thing and forget some other relevant mm -hmm. things. So I'll share with you that uh, the imaging that, that uh, we undertook, uh, we did a pan-CT scan, essentially, to look for bleeding. Okay. Uh, and we were pleased that the result didn't indicate any evidence of intracranial hemorrhage to explain the confusion. Uh, but there was an old right cerebellar infarct which was consistent with, with the history that we had. There were several hematomas which appeared several weeks old in nature over the left greater trochanter, mm -hmm. but there was some free air to suggest infection. Ooh. So I think clinically it was, you know, these were kind of helping us to home in on the problem, but also mm. sort of, um, you know, reassuring us that, that with the anticoagulant side of things, perhaps uh, it wasn't as major an issue that, that we had feared. So I, I'm interested in whether you think that that sort of um, gives an extra element to how you now might might want to approach this. So I'm very worried about this free air in the hip. Um, again, it could indicate infection, as we've have mentioned, um, and particularly if it's free air, you'd be thinking of the more nasty type of infective agents um, that may be producing air. So clostridium perfrigens is something that would be high on my list there. Um, from the hip perspective, I really need specialist input now. I need an orthopaedic surgeon because if I do need to take some fluid off to try and identify a cause, then it needs to be in theatre. It's certainly not something that I can be doing. And a question is as well, because he's on a doxaban, would it be appropriate to take him to theatre and do they need aspiration, ultrasound guided whilst he's on, whilst he's still got active adoxaban in the system? Something to think about. Um, where's the HB gone? So you mentioned that his haemoglobin was 120, it's now 110. Has he lost blood from somewhere? Or is this as a direct result of infection? Potentially. Um, and possibly dehydration. Maybe. Yes. So I'd need to look at his hematocrit. Absolutely. Because we know that his EGFR is a little bit on the lowest side of normal. So it could actually be lower than 110 with with yes. all the things that are happening. So so definitely I would uh, agree that we need to still be reassured where we understand where mm -hmm. it's gone. Mm. I probably now need to start thinking about managing this patient. So obviously this would have been going on whilst I was going through the investigations and trying to confirm or refute my diagnoses. So first of all, is he unwell or well? He's unwell, I know that. Have I ruled out serious causes of the, the confusion? We've done the CT scan. There's no intracranial hemorrhage. Good. However, we now we've got this air in the hip. Um, as always, you follow the ABCD approach. Um, he's talking, although he's confused. We know that his oxygen saturations are a little bit low, so he may benefit from some oxygen. 
His blood pressure was okay. However, given his tachycardia and his pyrexia, I think intravenous fluids would be appropriate at this point. Probably Hartman's, um, after we've got some cannulas in. Um, we know that his glucose is okay, but his creating kinase was high, so definitely we do need to get fluids in, actually. Um, antibiotics. So, what antibiotics am I going to give him? Hmm. <laughs> Again, we're still going down the route of insectic arthritis. So, um, I get advice, um, particularly from the orthopaedic team and the microbiologists, if I was going to treat septic arthritis. The British Society of Rheumatology have very clear guidelines on how we manage this. Um, and they usually start with flucloxacillin, two grams intravenously, QDS, four times a day. Um, and yeah, I think that's where I'd be going. Would I need to speak to intensive care? I mean, he seems to be hemodynamically stable at the moment. Um, it doesn't seem to have any organ failure. But that's going to be in the back of my head, definitely. And often enough, it depends on the setting that we're working in and as to the availability of some other specialty link-ups. Absolutely. Suffice to say that this case was uh, quickly discussed with the haematologist on call. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) And um, uh, from what I could understand uh, about the patient, he was given um, antibiotics that included uh, metronidazole for the infected hematoma. and it appeared that his confusion did start to sort of get better. It improved after about 24 hours of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So the orthopods, of course, were also involved in the decision making about this case. And throughout the time, uh, we stopped the oral anticoagulants. Mm-hmm. So what happened next, which I'm certainly very happy with the progress of the patient to report, is the patient himself, the hemoglobin level remains stable. Uh, So it almost sort of kind of justified the decision not to reverse the edoxaban initially. I think had we been more convinced that there was still active bleeding than, than we would have, but but the slightly wait and see approach uh, was uh, was probably right at the end. Mm-hmm. Now, in our teaching hospital, we could measure the edoxaban level, uh-huh. um, but to be honest, you know, does it tell us very much? I think it doesn't necessarily tell us um, whether it's in the therapeutic range. But I think what, what is helpful is it tells us that we, you know, we're um, we're perhaps under anticoagulating at this point in time, which is an important thing for, for decisions on interventions. So as it stood, by the time uh, we kind of uh, needed to do some intervention, there was already a kind of 48-hour gap since the last edoxaban. So we all felt that it was uh, quite reasonable for the orthopedic team to take the patient to theatre, left hip aspiration, find out a little bit more about what, what was happening. So so that was um, uh, quite a straightforward decision point at that time, but, but what I 
was going to ask um, you as a physician is what would you feel about covering that period with, mm. with an anticoagulant? Um, so, so that's often a difficult one to call. Yes, and my concern that's going through my head is you mentioned he had multiple pulmonary embolisms with right ventricular strain. So he's got significant clot burden. So if we stop it for too long, is he then at an increased risk of further pulmonary embolisms, prolonged hospital stay, recent hip replacement? So I'm worried about thromboembolism. How would I cover him? Hmm. Would low molecular weight heparin, unfractionated heparin, because we can control that and we can measure it a lot easier in the lab. Um, warfarin wouldn't, I wouldn't use warfarin. Um, and as you said, with the adoxaban, we, we've stopped that and because we can't measure it. Um, and also, does it have a longer half-life than low molecular weight heparin? I can't, re- <laughs> I can't remember. I think all those considerations are really important. Yeah. And I think suffice to say, the most evidence in this space has been with low molecular weight heparin. Yeah. And yes, it can be administered uh, in a kind of perioperative setting mm-hmm. as a subcutaneous injection once. Yeah. Uh, but if there's a feeling of potential risk of bleeding, we can split the dose and administer it 12 hourly. Mm-hmm. So that's what we chose to do. Okay. Uh, and suffice to say that everything went uh, according to plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other points are, are, are not wrong. And I think it's just that we don't have as much experience uh, about managing these kind of bridging scenarios. Mm. Uh, so, so certainly for now, the evidence base is uh, use low molecular weight heparin uh, because we would consider this patient at high risk. Uh, of rethrombosis given the scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to sort of go back a little bit mm-hmm. because when we initially ordered the uh, coagulation screen, I don't think it's totally unhelpful um, so long as we understand the limitations of, of uh, these test results mm-hmm. when somebody's on a direct oral anticoagulant. With idoxaban, which is an anti-factor 10A inhibitor, it's uh, very difficult to predict which tests will be abnormal. Mm-hmm. If the dose had been taken within the last two or three hours, then yes, you would expect some aberration uh, within the test, typically the prothrombin time, okay. which was uh, what we found in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, if he had been on the Bigotran, which is an anti-thrombin inhibitor, um, we kind of think that a useful rule of thumb is that if the APTT is normal, it probably means that, that you're probably safe to do some interventions. So, so but essentially, um, they are not reliable, as I Indicator. It depends on when the dose was last taken, and it, it, it's unpredictable. So, so if you're in a tertiary has hospital, yes, the hematologist can organise uh, an anticoagulant level that's appropriate for for the DOAC. Um, but uh, ultimately, in this particular case, we, we could wait that 48 hours for for the drug to clear the system. 
to to then intervene appropriately. So I was going to ask um, Amy whether there is uh, you know enough understanding at the front end. Had the situation been slightly different in this case, let's say the hemoglobin was down to. 80 and yeah. we were you know really concerned mm -hmm. that uh, active bleeding was happening mm -hmm. um, and then we would have to think about reversing anticoagulants yes and in your hospital setting would that be straightforward uh yes to a certain extent so depending on if we could see signs of active bleeding or you know we sort of knew where it was from and we know that they're on a doxaban um, obviously we don't have a direct reversal agent for adoxaban as yet so therefore I need to think about how I can manage this active bleeding in a supportive way so aside from contacting the haematologist on call to get advice I would think about utilising tranexamic acid maybe a possibility um, there is some suggestion that you could um, use um, products, uh, so blood products. So um, I, I may use fresh frozen plasma, platelet, um, platelets, cryo, um, if I thought that was a possibility. Um, I think certainly most uh, blood banks now yeah. will have um, some products to that can target uh, mm. anticoagulant reversal. Yeah. You, you're you know, absolutely right that with edoxaban there isn't an antidote at the present time. Uh, in the literature there has been some work uh, done on, uh, on a drug called endaxinate alpha but it's currently not approved for use in the UK uh, and it's an antidote for all the anti-factor 10 inhibitors so whether it's a doxaban or rivaroxaban or pixaban that, that could be used okay. so potentially mm -hmm. something that that could emerge in this space but not yet mm -hmm. um, if the patient were on was on the bigger trend then we do have an antidote um, it, it goes by the name of praxbin it's a monoclonal antibody um, and it does seem to to work very quickly and very promptly so so at least these days, we feel that uh, there is uh, some help in hand. You know, with old-fashioned warfarin, it's quite simple in mm -hmm. you know, vitamin K, and yeah. that, that's really excellent. But but with these new ones, uh, yeah, it's uh, still a challenge mm -hmm. to to think about reversing them quickly. So in this case, if I felt that I needed to reverse the anticoagulant, I would use uh, what we call prothrombin complex concentrates. Yeah. No, I think haematologists are as guilty as everybody for defining terms that nobody understands, uh, <laughs> such as prothrombin complex concentrate. But uh, what it is, is the, the vitamin K clotting proteins, which are 2, 7, 9, 10, concentrated up. So, so you're delivering almost a booster uh, to, 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 to normalize coagulation. Uh, and so there has been good experience, but probably not as effective as having an antidote. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about octoplex there. Is that one of the, yeah, okay. Would you give vitamin K as well? No. No, okay. no. 
not uh, not so, not in this scenario. Okay. Yeah, you might be treating yourself, but probably not. Yes. I was interested that you mentioned tranosamic acid mm. because it's certainly almost um, a drug that, that is used in any sort of severe hemorrhage setting, whilst the evidence is, of course, much more with trauma mm. uh, and um, you know, postpartum hemorrhage, mm. but it's starting to creep in into a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd be keen to find out whether I'm, uh, I'm uh, sort of speculating here a little bit whether you think it might be overused we yes i do are we certainly um i've noticed in the last couple of years that any bleeding gets tranexamic acid um it usually started in the emergency department or the acute medical setting um i think it's used because for want of a better drug so particularly you know i see a huge number of patients now a lot of the elderly who are on these direct oral anticoagulation drugs with no clear antidote, we know that something like Optoplex is very expensive. And particularly out of hours, it can be difficult to get your hands on. So there is definitely more use of tranexamic acid. Um, five years ago, I can't remember ever having prescribed it. Um, so absolutely, we use it a lot more. Yeah, and I think it's, it's not necessarily a word of caution here, but, but certainly the evidence is uh, for the safe use of, safe and effective use of tranexamic acid is in the kind of trauma and postpartum hemorrhage setting. Mm -hmm. And the good news is that it doesn't seem to result in an increase in thromboembolic episodes. Okay, oh, that is very good. Okay. Can I ask a question about INR? Now, <laughs> um, in all of our patients who come in on basically who have anything, whether they're on a DOAC, warfarin or anything, they get their INR checked. My understanding is INR is only really valuable if you're on warfarin, but we do a lot of them. I'm sure it costs a lot of money to the hospital and we don't know what to do with it because we don't know what it means in somebody who's not on warfarin. Any thoughts about that? Well, if this, uh, if you could see me, you would have seen me nodding my head. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's lots of literature out there that we over uh, request INRs. And essentially, the INR is only appropriate for somebody who's on a vitamin K antagonist. Yeah. So INR stands for International Normalized Ratio. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it's a ratio between the patient's prothrombin time, the patient who is taking uh, warfarin, um, over a normal prothrombin time, mm -hmm. somebody who's not taking it. So it's a ratio. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea about this ratio is that if you were on warfarin and you were living in the UK and then tomorrow you're traveling to, to Bangkok mm -hmm. and have your INR repeated, it should be the same because it standardizes the okay. reagents that might be different. Mm -hmm. um, but Actually, if you just want to know what the clotting time is, you just request the prothrombin time, the straightforward prothrombin time. No need to do a ratio. Uh, but, but I think people have got it into their heads because of the warfarin use that, that everything has to be the INR. Uh, so, so I think, yes, the answer to your question, if we overdo it, we should be more judicious and potentially, you know, there's some cost savings here. Absolutely. I was just thinking that actually, is this a good cost improvement project? Is should we now make it that you only do an INR if the patient's on warfarin? 
because every patient I see has an INR and it doesn't even, there might be a 17 year old with a cough um, and it's definitely something to think about. Yeah, you could berate me, you know, I'm a haematologist and I'm not getting the educational message. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I was going to summarize the kind of key learning points from this case, if that's good for you. Yeah. Um, You probably can think of some others, but I hope that um, people who listen in on this podcast today will go away understanding a little bit more about the effect of these DOACs such as uh, edoxaban on coagulation tests. Um, the second point was uh, that these uh, levels of edoxaban or any of these uh, direct oral anticoagulants you know, when to consider and the caution really in trying to interpret them. Uh, and there's a lot of problems still with the validation of these assays. So, so certainly, you know, consult with your hematologist whether it's appropriate. Mm. Uh, the third thing is uh, when to consider reversing the DOAC, including weighing up that bleeding risk versus that thrombotic risk, you know, that kind of balance that's often very difficult uh, but but I think increasingly there is guidance on how best to do it and uh, last but not least how to reverse these direct oral anticoagulants and the evidence base which we hope will be sort of increasing in a systematic way going forward. Can I just ask after this gentleman's operation and he had his hip aspiration at what point would you restart the edoxaban i think once um, the patient is healing you know and that's a very uh, loose term but but certainly when we feel that he's no longer uh, carrying an infection um, and he's no longer at risk of significant bleeding uh, we would start go back onto the edoxaban if it still felt to be the, the appropriate oral anticoagulant for him. Okay, and in the time between that and the operation, you'd keep him on low molecular weight heparin? Yes. Okay, yeah. okay fantastic. Um, so yes, yeah, some learning points from me are the fact that because I knew this was a case about um, direct oral anticoagulants and you said confusion, I was like, he's got a bleed. <laughs> and I think it's about being aware of my cognitive biases and thinking outside the box a little bit. And then when we mentioned he had a temperature of 39, and a recent hip replacement, okay, is this infection as well? Going back to classics, he comes dictum, patients can have as many things wrong with them as they damn well please. So he could have had a bleed and an infection. Um, really, really valuable to recap how we manage um, the bleeding associated with DOACs. Um, and also um, thinking about um, the value of prothrombin time and not doing INR in lots and lots of patients. So it was absolutely brilliant. I took away so many learning points. So that was brilliant. Um, Also, um, just want to say a little bit about um, Medicine 2020, which is the RCP sort of main conference next year. It's on the 23rd to the 24th of April uh, in Birmingham. And I wondered if you wanted to share a few words about that for us. Yeah, thanks Amy for that prompt. I am the lead organiser for this flagship conference of the Royal College of Physicians. Um, We want to build upon the success of our conference in 2019 Mm -hmm. 
Um, we had a record attendance and 70% of our delegates were classified as junior doctors. So, so we've listened to the feedback. Uh, we had very positive vibes from the meeting itself. And what I can promise you for Medicine 2020 is that we will do more of what was found to be really helpful. Apart from the sessions where you will get sort of good education updates on lots of aspects of, of, of medicine, there will also be very practical sessions, you know, what we call hands-on sessions, so ultrasound guided uh, uh, management. So a lot that we try and reflect would be helpful to physicians at the front door mm -hmm. and helpful to those who may not yet perhaps have decided on what specialty they would like to, to go into. Uh, but I just want to make the point that, that you know, this is a, an opportunity to convene as a physician family, to be celebrating your pride in being a physician. We don't often hear that or get that these days. Um, uh, but I think just um, getting away for two days mm. to get updated in the latest knowledge, to hear from key opinion leaders, including from leaders of the NHS mm. and the Department of Health. So an opportunity for, for you to be listened to as well, uh, in addition to listening to others. So come and join us. Um, it's been a lot of fun with Medicine 2019. And I can promise you that it will be a lot of fun next year. So, uh, Amy, please go out and spread. The I will. <laughs> it's so close to my hometown, so I'm, I'm going to have to come because it's in Birmingham. Um, so I will definitely be there. Maybe even recording some podcasts. That would be good, wouldn't it? Um, so thank you so much. That was brilliant. It was really invaluable. And I hope that all our listeners have taken away some learning points and hopefully we'll see them at Medicine 2020 in Birmingham. Um, thank you for listening to today's episode of the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you do want to get in touch with any feedback, you can email at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet me at Amy Burbridge. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.